I frequently hear from listeners who are thinking of starting their own podcasts. My advice is always the same. Why not? If that applies to you, let me tell you about Anchor. It is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live, on tape, during week 48 of quarantine, from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a dazzling view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, one of the foremost literary chroniclers of 19th century America, specifically the Civil War and the conflicts between the up-and-coming America and our nation's native inhabitants. His latest book is entitled Tecumseh and the Prophet, The Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation. Hello and welcome, Peter Cousins. Thanks so much for having me. Right off the bat, I feel that I'm on my heels because I don't know if I am saying Tecumseh properly. I'm not even entirely sure that there is an exactly proper way to say it in English, and I'm d definitely not sure I'm going to be saying Tenskwatawa exactly right either. Well, you, you, uh, you've got the anglicized form of Tecumseh just right. Uh, Wonderful. Supposedly, I mean, it, it, as best I could determine, the original pronunciation in Shawnee was Tecumseh, and uh, I think it became Tecumseh because Americans and British alike didn't particularly care for that th sound at the end or find it easy to pronounce. And you got Tengswatawa just right. Okay. All right. Well, we're off to a great start then. This book is new, but the general era and the subject, I gather, have been a lifelong, literally lifelong obsession for you. Why do you think that is? Why do you think this place and space in time hold special meaning for you and honestly for your life? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, um, I'm not a professional historian. I spent 30, I spent four years as an army officer and, and 30 years with the United States Foreign Service and State Department, most of it overseas. It's, it's always, it, since uh, I was a boy, I've been interested in the Civil War and, and uh, the American West and Native Americans. And it's, uh, I hate to use the word tainted, but not um, influenced by acad academia at all. <laughs> it's strictly something that I've developed uh, on my own. Now, why do you say that it might perhaps be tainted by a brush with academia? Well, I... I think there's a tendency uh, in some historical works, and I, 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 tr I certainly try to avoid this of, uh, to the extent that anyone can, I consciously try to avoid this, and that is to bring 21st century sensibilities into the work that you're doing and, and, and evaluating characters and circumstances and events through the 
prism of the 21st century and, and not judging people um, in terms of their environment, in terms of the prevailing cultures of the time. And I, I see a lot of that, unfortunately, especially with uh, books for a more academic audience in which authors clearly take a position based on debates and values of today and try to, again, plant those anachronistically into the past. Uh, and, and I think it skews, it skews the historical reality uh, of what occurred. Sure. At the same time, I am curious to know what you what you do personally make of the events of the 19th century that you talk about and the morality of the time. It seems to me that there's sort of three clear eras of American understanding of itself in regard to this. As of less than 100 years ago, the consensus view is the conquest of the West is um, a glorious triumph over an inferior group of people. And then you have the backlash to that, whereas Americans were asked to contemplate the possibility that our nation is founded on genocide. And then there's sort of the more minor but still meaningful, more recent backlash to the backlash, which is you can't, like you're saying, you can't judge their time by our contemporary morals. It was a, a might makes right kind of world. And whatever we might think of that, that was the rules that everybody was engaged with at the time. In moral terms, as somebody who spent so much time living in that time, what do you make personally, as an American, of the taking of the American West? Well, again, remember that now in, in the case of uh, my previous book, The Earth is Weeping, we are speaking of the American West. In Tecumseh and the Prophet, we're essentially speaking of America's heartland, the Midwest. That's right. um, so those are. I guess I mean I mean I mean West in the sense of uh, West of West the of the Appalachians. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, there was a, to, just to draw a few broad conclusions. I think there was a lot less uh, of a racial animosity, a lot less of a sense of these are in, inherently inferior people. When speaking of the Indians, than folks might might imagine. For the most part, and speaking of the time of Tecumseh the Prophet, the, the 18th century all the way to the end of the Indian Wars in the West, uh, with the exception of, of some you know, virulently anti-Indian Westerners, most Americans regarded Native Americans as equal in capacity to themselves, not as inherently inferior beings, but people who just were, had not had, and this is again speaking in the parlance of the day, not had the benefits of Christian enlightenment. And uh, there was, there was a, a, while there was a desire to take Indian lands, and some of that regrettably was inevitable given the, the population of the United States and how it was booming into the millions, whereas the native population uh, at the time of which we speak in the Midwest, for instance, at the time of Tecumseh and the Prophet, the early 19th century, the, the entire Indian population was perhaps 75,000. And you had, you know, the population of, of 12 million and growing in the United States, most of which was confined east of the Appalachians. And it just wasn't, wasn't tenable. The but there was there was a belief at the same time that Indians could be through Christianization, quote unquote, you know, in terms of the time, um, be taught 
to become yeoman farmers and be integrated into American society. But that would be at the expense of their culture and of their land. And I think the vast majority of Americans underestimated the strong spiritual uh, cultural ties that, that uh, Native Americans had to their lands. So I don't see occurring, and there's really no evidence of any sort of a plan of, of genocidal intent on the part of any American presidential administration during these times. There were, during the Civil War, there were a number of um, what clearly were genocidal events like the Sand Creek Massacre, but those were conducted uh, by Westerners acting on their own, untethered from the federal government. Of course, gold miners in California wiped out many of the small tribes there. But there was not a, a genocidal intent or policy on the part of the federal government, not in the sense of physical genocide, like we think of the Holocaust. But clearly, we could use the term, again, I'm, I'm using modern terminology, Right. But it applies in this case, I think, you know, cultural genocide, that the only way to save the Native Americans from extermination because of the huge uh, and relentless expansionist population of the United States that no, no administration could fully control, that the only hope to preserve the Indians uh, was for them to adopt the so-called white man's culture. So... I think, and that's kind of a broad outline, and from the Native American perspective, the difficulty you had is that, um, to, and this was to a lesser extent in the modern Midwest, to a greater extent in the American West, also to a lesser extent in the American South, but you had what were essentially warrior societies. And there was a fair amount in the uh, East of Mississippi of intertribal conflict that was just, just part of the, their way of life. and that was uh, uh, even greater in the American West. So it was very difficult for tribes to unite against American expansionism. And uh, that presented a whole nother level of challenge for Native Americans. They just could not unite, and particularly for any length of time. You've touched on the population reality. I read the book uh, 1491, the Charles C. Mann book, where he makes the case that contemporary and now i'm speaking really of you know colombian times i know but in the say 16th century there's all of these contemporary accounts of people taking boats up rivers and just seeing millions of natives on each side of the bank and now the issue with that is that they've never at least according to that book found the remains of all of these millions of people who were supposed to have been there based on your work based on your research what was the reality of the pre-Columbian population of America? Well, I think there might, I, you know, I think there might be some hyperbole in in, in, in the accounts of some of the early uh, uh, European explorers, perhaps because they didn't expect to find anyone. That the numbers they did uh, encounter, they perhaps you know exaggerated. But in any event, certainly the North America was much more heavily populated. Uh, before, let's say, Hernando de Soto entered uh, the southeast in the 1600s. But uh, nobody knows you know, how many Indians may have populated North America. Certainly it was in the, it was likely in the low millions, uh, maybe a couple of million people. No, no, again, no one knows for, for, cert, for certain. But it's clear that um, diseases, uh, right from the get-go, right when the first 
intruders like Hernando de Soto and Spaniards, other Spaniards uh, penetrated North America, that they brought the diseases, not, and not merely smallpox, but even just common influenza, diseases for which Native Americans had no defenses. And uh, the, the um, tribes were just, I mean, they were decimated far worse than, than Europeans were during the plague. Uh, and that continued even into the 19th century in the American West, uh, where you have smallpox outbreaks that would wipe out literally entire entire villages of, of, of uh, Indians in the West. Uh, and once great tribes like the Mandans in the in the uh, uh, mid uh, 1800s were, were almost wiped out uh, to the last man because of, of uh, disease. And that's certainly, yeah, that played a, a huge role. There were very few cases documented, and I think few instances where uh, whites intentionally tried to bring disease to the Indians. The old, you know, saw of, well, you know, the whites would trade uh, smallpox uh, infected blankets to the Indians. There was one instance of that involving the British uh, that was rather nefarious to say the least but as a rule that i mean that that was not part of the thinking but the just the natural lack of defenses to white man's diseases absolutely was was crippling for native americans i didn't want to bring up the smallpox blanket <laughs> thank you though because i was absolutely wondering about that so the entire story of this story could be entirely different if it had simply been the case that the natives had a bunch of diseases for which the europeans had no natural defenses instead of vice versa Oh yeah, actually, you're, you're, you know, I never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. I, that could have stopped the pilgrims and everyone else dead in their tracks on the Atlantic coast. Literally, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right if it worked the other way. So your book chronicles the the Shawnee leader Tecumseh, who, along with his brother, a religious leader and mystic named Tenskwatawa, surmised that the only hope for the native civilization's survival was, as you say, to pull these disparate and not always friendly native nations together, uh, banding together in what is now the American Midwest. It seems like he was a victim of bad luck. He didn't have the time or indeed just the population to have done anything more than temporarily probably held off the advance still the the duo emerges as perhaps the greatest or at least the most noteworthy of all the native leaders of their era is that about right in a nutshell what do you find so uniquely significant about them uh that's as that's, that's, that's pretty close although it's, I, it's a little more fatalistic okay. than i would than i would have it um they certainly did create the the largest i could call pan-indian alliance in uh american indian history for instance, at the, at the apex of, of the, the alliance Tecumseh and his brother created, and by this time, Tecumseh had largely supplanted his brother as leader of a political, what had started as a religious movement uh, on the part of his brother, came to more and more to, to be a political and military alliance to resist American encroachment on Indian lands. But at the apex of his alliance during the War of 1812, when they were allied with the British, he had some 6,000 warriors who responded to his call. And that's three times, nearly three times as many warriors as, uh, to put it in perspective, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse were able to muster on the Little Bighorn, which was the apex of uh, Indian resistance in the American West. And they, and they, Tecumseh and his brother did draw 
uh, supporters from a, a larger number of tribes than any other leader had previously. But they, they I, I entered the project kind of fatalistically uh, thinking that was this was inevitable. I was surprised to find that through a combination of uh, American ineptitude during the War of 1812, the early, early months of the war, and other circumstances, that Tecumseh and his alliance had a real chance of success uh, had it not been for you know, certain, uh, certain events on the battlefield and certain um, mistakes that the British alliance with the Indians made. And the fact that any, any Native American alliance was by nature tenuous. Tecumseh, neither Tecumseh nor any Indian leader had the ability to, to apply coercion. They, their followers followed them uh, so long as they deemed them worthy to follow. I mean, this was, they were, this was the ultimate democratic society. Any warrior could choose to fight or not. Any sub-chief could choose to follow a higher chief or not, depending on their own predilections. So it was a very amorphous uh, alliance. Alliance maybe even, in our thinking, too strong a word. But, but they, I don't want to spoil the book, but I was very surprised in the course of, of writing it to realize that there were moments when the tide could have turned. And I don't think that they ever were to realize their ultimate goal, which was, was of course, to roll back Americans south of the Ohio and east of the Ohio River. I mean, that was unrealistic, but um, given their numbers, nothing else. But it was an interest that the British held with them to support the idea of the establishment of an Indian buffer state and to, to try to help them regain as much of their homeland as possible. And now we're talking about maybe the northernmost portion of Ohio, northern Indiana, virtually all, all of Michigan and, and Wisconsin, because that was in the British interest to, to create such a buffer state to prevent the United States from, its, from seizing Canada. Which was, a, which was a long time American goal in the early 19th century. So if the British had had a little more might to, to uh, apply uh, to the alliance, a little more troop strength, uh, had it not been for the Napoleonic Wars, they very well could have prevailed. So it, it and that whether or not an, an Indian state in the modern Great Lakes, upper Midwest could have endured into the present in any shape or way, shape or form, of course, is an open question. At, the, at a minimum, though, it would, have, it would have slowed westward immigration beyond the Mississippi River and potentially uh, Michigan, at a minimum, perhaps parts of Wisconsin could have become incorporated into a buffer state loyal to Canada. So there are a lot of, a lot of plausible what ifs, a lot more than I thought when I started the work. Let's talk about the brothers in turn. William Henry Harrison, the future president who made his legend by supposedly killing Tecumseh in battle, paid his adversary the following compliment. If it were not for the vicinity of the United States, he would perhaps be the founder of an empire that would rival in glory that of Mexico or Peru. It seems like there was some genuine respect for the ability, the intelligence, the charisma of Tecumseh on the part of Harrison and just throughout the American world as it right. was 
of the time. It has to help that Tecumseh learned English and was able to express himself in terms that they could easily understand. At the same time, it seems he was tailor-made for a noble savage caricature, the pure right, and simple right. native who sees truth and wisdom because he hasn't been corrupted by civilization. Um, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a fair assessment. He was, um, he and his brother were, were quite a contrast. I mean, Tecumseh, both of them were born of a father who had been a, 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 a Shawnee war leader who was killed in 1774 in battle and, and were of a clan that produced war leaders. And so they were expected to follow in their father's footsteps. And in the case of Tecumseh, he was from childhood, very charismatic. Uh, he had quite a following as a, as, a, as a child. He was the kind of kind of kid other kids gravitated to. And uh, he was an excellent hunter. He was handsome. He was um, quite, quite personable when he wanted to be. Uh, he could be a bit of a loner, but he was also quite charismatic. He made friends among whites very readily. So he, he was a kind of a natural leader and, again, a very, a very uh, charismatic figure and very kind of classically handsome, uh, as, as Americans imagined Indians should be. And um, without a doubt, a very intelligent man too, and very, and very adept at at, uh, at, uh, at power politics. And his brother, on the other hand, was sort of tailor made for Hollywood, opposite of him. Not classically handsome. Had put out one of his own eyes as a child. Was a former fall down drunk. And again, there was a thing being brave in battle and capable in battle and a skilled diplomat was something that the European. Uh, descended mindset could wrap their their mind around, but you've already talked about the sense of um, the the power and value of Christianity as they saw it being central to human life. And Tesquitawa represented a different sort of spirituality. What can you tell us about the spiritual and religious life of the Shawnee? And I'm not so much speaking about the rituals, although I did find the concept of this vomit town that you touched on right. very, very compelling but um in terms of the the nature of the beliefs the conception of the world the conception of self uh and we're not we're not limited to the shawnee the important it's important, important to note that there were uh uh more than a dozen tribes in the midwest and they were interestingly uh, the shawnee was one of the smaller but they all shared pretty much co common belief system so we could speak of the Shawnee, we're speaking with equal validity of the other tribes in the Midwest, the Chippewa, the Potawatomi, and so forth. The, the world, their worldview was, you know, very closely tied to nature, obviously. They believed that uh, they, they were monotheistic in the sense that they did believe in an, in an overarching, all-powerful spirit, uh, be, be the master of life, the master of breath, but it all equated to our concept of God. But they also believed that that lesser spirits uh, inhabited the, the physical world around them, that, that animals possess spirits, that, that uh, even inanimate objects possess spirits. So they were very, very close. They believed that, that God, the master of life, to use the Shawnee uh, term, was, was uh, omnipresent and could affect uh, events in, uh, we would consider mundane, uh, like a like a bad weather event. They would attribute to to the to perhaps displeasure of the master of of life. So their their faith 
was a 24 seven thing. I mean, it was, it was a constant. It was not, well, you go to church on, you know, equivalent on Sunday and you forget about, no, it was, it was an all encompassing part of their life. And uh, they believe that the, the earth was indeed sacred and that it was a gift to them from the master of life. And there was also a strong under, undercurrent that they deserved their way of life, the way of life that had been given them, only so long as they comported themselves in a way that was acceptable to God. And that was something that Tengswatawa latched onto because when he had, he was, he was a complete dissolute. I mean, he was, this would be a fascinating case study for Alcoholics Anonymous because <laughs> right after the moment when he had this remarkable vision, he fell into this, this catatonic state for 48 hours, having been, again, the moment he, he fell into this, he was a, a, a complete wastrel and he emerged from it an absolutely reformed alcoholic who never took another drink in his life and who propounded this remarkable creed of religious and cultural and societal renewal. In, in essence, uh, if you boil it down to, the, to, the, to, the, to, uh, to its essence, it was that the Indians in the Midwest have gone astray. They have, they have adopted too many American ways, uh, alcohol being foremost among them because alcoholism was rampant in the, in the villages and were just destroying the Indians. And they, in the process, had incurred the displeasure of the master of life, and they needed to return to a pure form uh, of their culture and society in order to regain what they had lost in terms of hunting, you know, the hunt of hunting lands and the disappearing game uh, in terms of uh, not merely preventing Americans from intruding further, but if they really believed Americans would somehow vanish from the face of the earth. So, so, so he, he, you know, he, he seized upon that. He was very sincere in his belief. At the same time, it was not a concept unique to him. There was a long tradition of prophets and seers among the native Americans uh, who espouse similar messages calling for a cultural and religious renewal so as to preserve what, remain to the Indians. And um, uh, again, because religion was part of every aspect of Indian life, th those kind of arguments, that sort of a creed had much more of an impact than it would among, you know, whites at the time. And yet, obviously, that's not unique to charismatic religious figures. I can think of things from Judaism, for example. Of, right. you know, we've, stra we've strayed from our covenant with God, and this is the punishment that we will continue to receive until we redeem ourselves in his eyes. That seems like a universal human. Well, in, in fact, it's, it's a very good point. In fact, there was a religious revival, a, re a Christian revival, shortly before Tengswatawa fell into his trance and had his vision. It was the, the great, the great uh, Kentucky... Um, revival of, I think it was 1801, maybe off a year or so, and uh, it, the great revival in, in Southern Ohio and, and Northern Kentucky that gave birth, among other things, to the Shakers. And it was this profound religious uh, revival. And, they, and then and the Indians saw that happening. So there was a little bit of that that also influenced, I think, Tanks Latawa indirectly. So certainly, it was, you're right, it was not, not only not unique to the Native Americans in the Midwest, but it was occurring among whites in the Midwest at the same time. I was um, surprised and really impressed at the really granular detail in which you're able to describe the the daily lives of, in this case, the, the Shawnee. I'm just curious, what 
sources are you able to to lean on to know you know literally the ingredients in food well i guess food i sort of know that if they if they serve a meal to europeans that's maybe a bad example but it seems like you knew what it was like to be walking around inside an indian village at the time i really did everything i could possibly to put myself in the shoes of the of Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa and, the, and their fellow Native Americans to try to understand things from their point of view. And the source material, there's, um, it's kind of axiomatic, the farther back you go in Native American history, the more difficult, difficult it is to find source material. It was comparatively easy in the case of the Indian Wars in the West, they're much more recent and much better le records left. But surprisingly, they were very good source material. Um, the Indians in the Midwest were by no means racist, and a large percentage of the population of these tribes, the time of which we're speaking, consisted of Americans or earlier colonists who had been captured by the Indians, either as children or even in some cases as adults, and were adopted into the tribes. And very few of them left the tribes willingly. They, they enjoyed living among the Indians. But many of those who did left excellent memoirs, excellent accounts of their times living with the Indians that are, that are for the most part, quite reliable. Tenskwatawa himself, later in life, dictated accounts of Shawnee culture and Shawnee religion to the personal secretary of the governor of Michigan Territory. That was an excellent source. That's helpful. And of course, uh, a lot of this has been passed down by the Shawnee and other tribes uh, through the generations. So it, it was not difficult to to reconstruct, uh, as difficult as one might think to reconstruct the the, the daily life of, of uh, a member of one of these tribes. Obviously, I'm sure I miss some subtleties. I hope not too many. But uh, but fortunately, it, it was it was possible, and uh, I, you know I'm very grateful those sources existed. It would have been a very I think a, a very bland book without them. So the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which predates the critical events of this book by at least 20 years, creates this blueprint by which new settlements in the American Midwest and West can become U.S. states. It assumes that they are going to take native land, but at the same time vows to deal with natives in, quote, the utmost good faith. Now, it's notoriously hard to treat people in good faith when you're violently taking their land. Why do you think America chose to include that sort of verbiage, um, you know, pay that sort of sentiment lip service in the Northwest Ordinance? Um one, one, one comment before I get to that, and that is sure. the, the book, uh, people who do read will find that it goes back even further. I mean, I, I begin with, sure. with you know, the 17, the, the days of British colonists. Uh, but um, uh, as far as Tecumseh and his brother were concerned, that, you know, they were still relative young men when the Northwest Ordinance was uh, promulgated. I don't think it was strictly lip service. You know, it's hard to say whether it was hypocrisy on the part of policymakers or a genuine belief, again, that they could convert the Indians to an American way of life. It's hard to say, you know, what percentage of one dominated. Um, of course. By the time William Henry Harrison came on the scene as governor of the Northwest Territory, which inc incorporated virtually all of the Midwest, 
1799. And then with the election of Thomas Jefferson, from Thomas Jefferson in 1801, he received his marching orders, which were to obtain as much of the Indian land as you possibly could without provoking war, which, you know, was maybe at best naivete on the part of Jefferson, a lack of understanding of how much the traditional way of life meant to the Indians, that Jefferson didn't really believe they could be converted into yeoman farmers and that as such, they wouldn't need these vast lands to hunt over. And again, you know, whether that was self-serving, naive, a genuine belief, it's, it's hard to know what part of that predominated in his thinking and that of others, not only the architects of the Northwest Ordinance, you know, speaking of, of Washington and Henry Knox, but Thomas Jefferson as well. Uh, it proved to be, of course, very naive uh, to think that the Indians would uh, would entirely give up their way of life. And um, the more so as among the Indians in the Midwest, although they practiced agriculture, that was an important part of their way of life. And they lived in fixed communities. That was women's work. I mean, men would not participate in agricultural work. They were clearly defined sex roles as I go into in the book in depth. Two distinct sources of power emanating from the master of life um, and distinct sex roles that uh, derived from that and that were religiously based. So the notion of, of American you know, Indian men in the Midwest suddenly becoming farmers was anathema to them. They were hunters and warriors. They were not farmers. That was a woman's job. And that was something that uh, I think the, the American officials could never fully comprehend. Well, let's talk about the warrior nature of the, the male Native Indian identity. Tecumseh himself portrayed white civilization as greedy and insatiable for materials, resources, and most of all, land. And he portrayed the Native culture as content to share in North America's endless natural bounty. But is that really an accurate description of his world? You described the Iroquois being in a perpetual state of war against Tecumseh's own tribe, although you say that the natives were not prone to torture. When they employed it, they employed it to to grisly effect. So was was Tecumseh speaking on the level when he portrayed his side of it? Uh, I think I think so. I think the the, um, the Iroquois certainly were by the time of Tecumseh, the Iroquois and, and the Algonquin tribes, which were the majority of the tribes in the in the Midwest. You know, had reached a rapprochement in the 1600s. The Iroquois swept through the Ohio Valley, either wiped out or displaced most of the tribes, including the Shawnee. And it was it was uh, a it was warfare based largely on a desire to uh, dominate the, uh, the 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 pelt trade with the Europeans. But by the time of Tecumseh. The, the tribes in the Midwest generally had carved out their areas and being fairly sedentary people and there being enough game animals for everyone, and again, until the whites began encroaching, they got along pretty well. And warrior, there were skirmishes, small skirmishes among tribes, but it really, it really never rose to the level uh, of full-scale war, you know, a warrior would go, would go out and uh, you know sneak into a, a a village and steal a few horses, and and that was a great 
you know, a great feat of arms. Uh, it certainly was not like the tribes west of the Mississippi. I mean, were they engaged in wholesale exterminationist warfare among one another, in part because being hunting societies, they needed far more land than the tribes in the east did. But he was speaking pretty much on the level at the time of which he lived. Uh, the tribes did get along very well. And that was also the case, as I'm discovering in my current project, among the tribes uh, in the American South. There was uh, more hostility uh, be between the, the tribes in the South than there was north of the Ohio. But um, it, uh, in Tecumseh's time again, among the tribes in his in his world, open warfare was among the tribes was not a not a reality. You've said that in researching this book, you discovered that there was indeed some alternate timeline in which an Indian state might well have been established, at least temporarily, and it didn't have to turn out this way. I'm curious, and I know this is beyond the scope of this particular book. Was there an alternate timeline? Was there ever any enthusiasm on the part of Americans to ever say, enough is enough, we've gone as far, or was Manifest Destiny, if I'm using that even correctly in the context, always all about getting all the way to the Pacific? It always was, even even among the staunchest uh, supporters of Indian rights. And um, after the Civil War, you had a lot of the great abolitionists who fought so hard, so long for the rights of slaves, for abolition, the rights of uh, former slaves. A lot of them found after the Civil War found themselves uh, not necessarily twiddling them, their thumbs because there was still much work to be done, obviously, but they wanted a, a new cause and they gravitated toward American Indian rights and advocating on behalf of the Indians. But even the most uh, devoted advocate of Indian rights never doubted that part of their mission was to convert the Indians to a Christian, white, American way of life. They, they just could not see the value of Native American culture. And, uh, and uh, so Manifest Destiny uh, continued to, even among the, the most focal supporters of, of, of Indian rights. And, um, you know, part of it, when you got to the West, there was a certain, tra really a, a tragic inevitability that there wasn't in the Midwest. And that is that you had tribes like, by way of example, the Cheyenne Indians. At the time, uh, the, the post-Civil War years, the Cheyenne numbered maybe 4,000 people altogether, the Northern and Southern Cheyenne. Yet they claimed, I think 4,000 people, and they claimed as their rightful homeland, their hunting grounds, the western half of Nebraska, the western half of Kansas, the eastern portion of Colorado, uh, portions of northern Oklahoma, portions of uh, South Dakota. I mean, to think that you could stop the flow of millions of Americans westward to accommodate in the equivalent of maybe three modern western states to, to set those aside for the exclusive use of 4,000 people of any sort, it's just, regrettably, it wasn't tenable. In the Midwest, it was different. And and uh, you had, for instance, uh, a good, the Shawnee provided an interesting example. 
um, the majority of Shawnee did not, and the, who remained in the Midwest at the time of Tecumseh and the, his brother, didn't were not supporters of them. Most of their support came from other tribes in the Midwest. And the the 900 or so Shawnee who constituted the vast majority, they had already settled um, in a village in Northern Ohio and were, were trying to make the jump to, to become Americanized farmers, even casting aside the traditional male roles. And, um, you know, they, they were well on that path. They didn't have nor need a lot of land nor want a lot of land. But by the 1830s, white settlers coveted everything. And they were like the Cherokee to the South. They were pushed westward as, as well. And that didn't have to happen. I mean, these were just a few hundred people. They could have been assimilated easily. And that was true, I think, throughout the Midwest. And also in the American South, uh, the tribes weren't that large. They, they were showing a tendency to assimilate and uh, being uh, increasingly agricultural in their, in their way of life, I think could have been assimilated had there been a tolerance for that. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a tragedy that that didn't occur. In the West, uh, among the Plains Indians in particular, it was far different because there were, f- there were few and they needed so much land. The last question that I want to ask you, I, I wrote down a quote from the beginning of the book. I hope I got this quote down correctly. Correct, uh, correct me if I did not. The violent treatment and lawlessness of the Northwest Territory, which presaged the excesses of the American West half a century earlier, must be told if we are to appreciate the heritage of our nation's heartland. I'm curious what you mean by that sentence, in particular, of course, the last part of that sentence. How should this help us appreciate the heritage of our nation's heartland? Well, it's surprise uh, most Midwesterners, as it did me. I'm from Illinois myself, the fact that the uh, some of the most, most brutal, bloodiest, uh, largest battles between the United States uh, and Native Americans occurred in the modern Midwest. That's that's not widely known. People think of the Indian Wars. They think of the they think of Little Bighorn in the West. And one battle battle um, uh, called Saint Clair's defeat in 1791. Nearly the entire standing United States Army was wiped out by the Indians. Nearly it wasn't much of an army, but nearly um, nearly 800 soldiers died in one battle, uh, which was nearly as many soldiers as died in the entire during the entire course of the post-Civil War Indian Wars in the West. And there, not only were there violent pitch battles, but there were uh, numerous skirmishes between you know, Kentuckians and, uh, and Tennesseans and other settlers with Native Americans. So there, was, there, was a, um, there were some very brutal and violent episodes in the settlement of the Midwest, and in particularly, of course, during the War of 1812, when it became much more formalized. You know, the British and the and uh, their Indian allies, Tecumseh, his brother, and, and others against the Americans. Uh, so it, it was a it was a it was a it was a violent conquest in, in large part, and that's something I think people kind of assume when they think of the Midwest. That well, somehow it just came to be. You know, it's, it's sort of a it's sort of a uh, 
I don't know, a, a bucolic sort of way, not with not with the violence that characterized the settlement of the of the American West. And that, that notion needs to be dispelled. Yeah, it's again, I, I totally understand that where you come from. And I think it's the only way you can come from on this that you can't put our values on things. But just how, how do we reckon with this as as modern Americans? And I grew up in northern New Jersey and the town names there. We all I knew. Why is why do these towns have such silly names? There's Parsippany and Whippany and Weehawken and Sakasana. And somebody says, well, those are Native American. Those are Indian names. And we go, oh, OK. And then that's the end of the conversation. Obviously, we're not going to undo the, 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 the whatevers, the wrongs, the rights, whatever of hundreds of years ago. But where ought the the history of the land, where ought it sit in our understanding of our current nation, do you think? I think we need to recognize that um, one thing that 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 the set the, the earliest earlier settlers of the Midwest of the, of the American South, they adopted a lot from the native culture, uh, as well as the Indians adopting a lot from the settlers' culture, and that there was there was a lot of there. There was the violence, but there also, on a day-to-day basis, there was a lot of give and take. I, I don't, I don't want to overemphasize the violent aspect of it. I mean, Tecumseh himself had a lot of white friends, settler friends in Ohio, some very close friends. Uh, so I don't want to over it. I don't want to overstate that. I think we need to realize that the, that the contributions of, of Native Americans were real. They they uh, were long lived, particularly you know east of the Mississippi River, and uh, you know they should be they should be they should be an understanding of that that uh, that this land belonged and was was vibrantly settled by a people before before us. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it seems to be easier to do with the Atlantic coastal region for some reason and the American West. Than it does for the deep south and the midwest that that, that region to me at least uh, it seems to kind of fall through the cracks when by I mean, it shouldn't by any means i guess that would be you know a, a principal lesson that there, there, there was a vibrant there were vibrant cultures there were you know in, important conflicts as well as cultural coexistence they really they really need to be studied if we're to understand understand our nation not only in the west but also uh, the remainder of the country well, as I said, your book provides just a very vivid picture of life as it was such then, in addition to the subjects and the conflicts that defined them. It's called Tecumseh and the Prophet, the Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation. Peter Cousins, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, stay well and stay healthy. Stay healthy.